Welcome to New Dawn. This week, we have a special two-part series with the Race and Capitalism Project's postgraduate fellow, Cherise Spurgeon-Stelly, author of W.E.B. Du Bois, A Life in American History, and writer, director, and filmmaker, Boots Riley. Thanks for tuning in. Okay, let's kick it off. Good evening, comrades. I'm Jeff Simons, a filmmaker and a communist with the Claudia Jones uh, School for Political Education based in DC. And we're excited to host tonight's event with the Chicago-based New Dawn podcast. You already know the title, Anti-Capitalism in These Times, a conversation with Boots Riley and Sharice Burden-Stelly. The Claudia Jones School is about providing accessible political education through discussion, outreach, and organization. But enough about us. You already know who we are. If you're here, we're going to talk about our folks who are going to be hosting this entire conversation. Dr. Sharice Burden-Stelly is a scholar of political theory, political economy, and intellectual history. She is currently an assistant professor of Africana Studies and Political Science at Carleton College. And in 2020 to 2021, she will serve as a postdoctoral scholar with Race and Capitalism Project and Political Science Department at the University of Chicago. Dr. Burden's, Burden Stelly, excuse me, is the co-author with Dr. Gerald Horn of W.E.B. Du Bois, a Life in American History. Her published works appear in journals including Souls, Du Bois Review, Socialism and Democracy, International Journal of Africana Studies, and the CLR James Journal. She is the guest editor of the forthcoming Claudia Jones, Foremother of World Revolution special issue of the Journal of Intersectionality. She is also a regular contributor to Black Perspectives, the award-winning blog of the African American Intellectual History History Society. Basically, she does a whole lot. Academic. And of course, Boots Riley is an American rapper, producer, screenwriter, film director, and communist activist. He is the lead vocalist of the Coup and Street Sweeper Social Club. He made his feature directorial debut with Sorry to Bother You, released in July 2018, which he also wrote. I am going to kick it off to you two now. What's okay. up? Hey y'all, uh, Jeff, thank you so much for um, that um, informative introduction. And thank you also to the Claudia Jones School for Political Education for uh, hosting this event this evening, which really came about, we were just speaking about how Twitter is a hellscape. This is true, but this event would not have taken place without Twitter um, because yeah, cool. I, what'd you say? Double-edged sword, excuse me for interrupting. Double-edged sword, yes. So um, I had tweeted that I was interested in having a conversation um, with Boots Riley, and that desire came from the fact that um, you, Boots, 
have been made no bones about the fact that you are a communist. You know, people really try to talk around it. They'll say anti-capitalist or or socialist. But uh, I remember when you said it on, I think it was Democracy Now. You know, Amy Goodman was like anti-capitalist, and you said communist, and you might as well have said you're you were Candyman, right? She was. <laughs> she really did not <laughs> want to say that, and so that really struck me because as we were speaking about before we started recording. It is not, it is only very recently that that has become something that people speak op openly about. So um, what's the, the first question I guess I have for you is what's the importance of making the statement that you are a communist and, and what does it mean for you to do so openly? Um, the, the statement is about what we're fighting for because anti-capitalists sometimes, well often can just mean you kind of don't like capitalism. Right. And you could not like a lot. You could be a prisoner and not like prison and not have a plan to get rid of it. Right. And, you know, that that's the whole point is not to just be anti-capitalist because very few people like capitalism. The question is, what are we going to do about it? And saying communists answers what we're going to do about it. And there's only two things you can have. You're either going to have something where a few people hoard all the wealth or something where we share the wealth. And even folks that call themselves anarchists, often many of them, when you talk to them, what they're talking about in the end result is a society that would be defined as communist. So I'm talking about what that end goal is. Now people have, you know, there are people that call themselves anarchists, some people call themselves socialists, and some people call themselves communists, and many of, much of what they would disagree on is how to get to that place. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. and, uh, but I think it's good to talk about, it's good to state where we want to go. Mm -hmm. Excellent. That's very, uh, I think, very helpful and informative. So, of all of the forms of creation in, in which you've been engaged, including political organizing, community activism, poetry, music, um, among many other endeavors, you're probably best known for writing and directing the 2018 film, Sorry to Bother You. Um, so this is about a hundred part question, so bear with me. Okay, what inspired you to make this film? Who is your audience? And what are some of the key messages you wanted to convey to the viewers? And all right, so one of the biggest questions my friends have, and I sh I'm sure another like uh, many people have, is about the sort of the equisapiens uh, uh, turn at the end, right? Mm -hmm. um, so what was up with that? And is it really so far-fetched or unthinkable to think that some variation of what you envisioned there uh, could actually happen in the near future? So, mm -hmm. yeah. well, okay, trying to remember all the things. <laughs> I, my grandmother ran the Oakland Ensemble Theater in the 70s and 80s, um, and I was around, and I got involved in political, I, got, I, I joined a, a communist organization, Progressive Labor Party, when I was 14, 15, something like that. And um, we were involved in organizing uh, farm workers in the Central California Valley, and in that area, Delano and McFarland, there was the legend of Teatro Campesino, who would show up at the fields doing plays that had to do with people getting involved in organizing. They weren't there at the time, by, by the time I was there in the 80s, but their legend was there. And so I started thinking about putting theater and uh, 
in political organization together. And I got involved in the theater, but then I was in the Black Repertory Theater, which is in Berkeley, and at the time was in a storefront theater. And I was like, damn, doing 40 people at a time is gonna take a long time to build the revolution. Mm -hmm. And at that same time, Spike Lee came out with uh, uh, Do the Right Thing, and I was like, okay, that's what's gonna happen. I went to film school. But at the same time, I was doing music and Oakland was the place where every record label ended up having to have a group from. And so we got a record deal while I was in film school. And so the whole time I was like, which is why we got known for lyrics that were so-called cinematic is because I was trying to tell stories mm -hmm. uh, with my music, uh, you know, having come from that. Because doing music was almost like a, uh, I don't know, it wasn't a compromise, but I've made the choice, like, am I going to keep going to school and not know whether I can get a film done? So I've always, I'm always thinking in films, uh, you know, often when I'm writing my lyrics, I'm thinking about the video or thinking about how people will see this in their head. So, um, you know, uh, I, I, I think it's, you know, I've always wanted to make a film. And what made me sit down and write it was, I think, just at one point when I, I wasn't happy with the project that I was doing, mm -hmm. I think, you know, uh, me and Tom Morello did a project called Street Sweeper Social Club. And, um, and you know, for all the, the talk about uh, working together and trying to make things happen, you know, together, it's hard for artists because there's a lot of, uh, you know, I don't know, there's a lot of plotting your place and all that kind of stuff. And I'm sure you've written a book with somebody. So I don't know if those same things come up, but I wasn't feeling satisfied with that. And I was like, okay, let me do something that is just me, just in my head. And so I wrote that. Now, um, trying to remember the rest of the quote. Okay. Uh, the, the, the whole of the audience, is everybody like I'm? I speak from my own experience, which is um, a, a lot of it is just growing up in the black community. But even that community is not a vacuum. So there's it's all over every every place. But I speak from my own experience. Um, but my goal is to help create a movement in which the working class overthrows the ruling class. And we create a system in which the people democratically control the wealth that we create with our labor, right? So that means the whole working class has to come. But the, but the only way I can relate to anybody is through being personal, through being through through my own thing. And and the more specific you get in art, the more universal it becomes, right? So right now with this movie, there are people in Brazil, there are people in uh, in Spain. I'm the, I'm just thinking about people I've seen on the internet that said they saw it, and th that are watching it. Um, during this that that beginning of the strike wave that happened in April, a lot of people might not know, but since March we've had 900 strikes across the United States. In April there were 300, and during that strike wave, I kept getting messages from people saying, "Look." The way we were able to make this strike happen and convince everybody to go on strike was we showed your movie. And then people were down. And, um, and, the, and, and 
Uh, before that, some folks in Baltimore told me they were trying to get everybody to do a strike. They didn't know whether it was a, or a wildcat and form a union after that. And I don't remember where it was, but they, were, they weren't sure what was going to happen until right before they took the vote. Somebody went, Equisapiens, let's be out. And then everybody voted for it, right? So the point is, is that with, with, with organizing, when we organize campaigns and, and uh, you know, reform struggles with the goal of, of creating a revolutionary movement, what we're doing often is trying to bring people through an experience that opens up their eyes uh, and, and causes them to have an analysis of their power and in, in relationship to the system. With a movie, you can make people feel like they're having that experience. So I, I'm learning that, you know, what I was trying to do with the music to, to more or less success, it's a lot more successful with this, with, with the movie. So um, my audience is the entire working class. Um, the Equisapiens at the end, I, I, the experience I was trying to bring people through was the same experience that happens when you um, learn something new about the world. All of a sudden things change. It's almost like falling in love. You fall in love and all of a sudden you notice all the colors on your street that you didn't notice before. And, and then, you know, and, 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 and when you come into some new understanding of the world, things look different and feel different. And I wanted that to happen in the movie where you think it's this thing, but then it turns into this and you think it's this thing and then it turns into this. And I wanted people to, ha to have that, that feeling. Now, why I needed it to be, why I needed to do it with Equisapiens. So basically when I got to the party scene, that was about page 50. And I was like, okay, I got to get to the point here. And, and um, so I knew that I needed him to see himself. I didn't want Cassius to change because, you know, his girlfriend told him that he was doing wrong or his friends told him he was doing wrong because my belief from what I've seen from organizing is that the thing that changes people is their idea of themselves and their, their idea of their power in the world, not necessarily learning the right idea or it being told to them, but them coming to that through some, some experience or sense of power or, or, or understanding that they're less powerful than they thought they were. So, I needed that to happen at the party. Why? Because we're at about page 50. And so at first I wrote the rap scene, which was, you know, the nigga shit thing. And um, when I wrote it, I knew it was a good scene. But I was like, does this make sense that in this world where not only has everybody accepted, you know, basically chattel slavery, and it's openly talked about. But not only that, he's selling slaves, right? Is would, would him all of a sudden realizing, oh, the people at my job, they're racist, you know, is that going to be the thing that turns him around? And I was like, no, not in this world that I've heightened to this level. What was going to take for him to, you know, or him to just see himself as being 
that symbol of blackness in that that the way that they needed him to be was that going to be enough and and i think a lot of movies could have turned it on that point right and that could have been the thing um and we would have accepted it because compared to other movies that would be cool but i needed it to be more real i needed him to 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 in this heightened world um uh, have something that felt mortally endangering that felt that shook him to his to his core and so i needed that to be something uh that that made him consider those things something physical and that that's where that came and i wanted him to basically see himself that's basically a version of himself on 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 the ground and 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 also just as an artist you get tired of the same old thing so you 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 want things that that make people uh, get on their toes and engage with the work in a way that allows them to um, to understand that they got to pay attention and and um, they don't know what's happening. And whether that's good for getting across political, getting across ideas or not, I don't know. But I just know as an artist, I want people to be engaged with the work in a certain way. Okay, I got you. Falling in love, it's like falling in love. I particularly appreciated that analogy. <laughs> All right, so I guess in keeping with, with this question of how sort of politics and art flow together. So you're a labor organizer from a family of activists. Um, I just wanna, go ahead. Mm -hmm. The only reason I wouldn't say that is because right now I'm an artist and the times that I have worked and supported labor things. I, I, I mean, a labor organizer is a certain job to me. And mm -hmm. I've supported and, and helped out uh, uh, labor campaigns. So okay. I wouldn't say that. And, and right now, I'm not an organizer. Mm -hmm. Right now, I'm, I'm an artist. So I'm usually having to flip back and forth. And at times, I've quit doing music so that I could be an organizer and, and then quit organizing so I could do music or art. Mm -hmm. So you're currently an artist who supports labor campaigns from a family of activists. Um, so and so I just basically I'm curious about how places like Oakland and Detroit have influenced the ways that you brought together organizing and art. And um, how is it you spoke into this a little bit, but if you could say more about how art, so art or culture work, um, why they're such an important part of your politics? And are there left legacies in these places, Oakland and Detroit, that have influenced you or have inspired you? Yeah. Um, you know, some of it is, is hard to parse out because you're so close to it, right? Um, you know it's there. You know, like, if people are like, you do that just like your mama, you know, you're like, really? You know, you know it's true, but you, you have, it takes a while to, to figure out exactly what that is. Um, you know, I, so definitely, um, I lived in Detroit till I was six. My father, uh, my father was, was a radical organizer who did do some work in, uh, with, with uh, labor stuff in, in the factories, but other stuff as well. And, um, and so his, 
what I saw from the, those organizing days there, even though I was six when we left Detroit, was a certain style that, um, to which I didn't know at the time it was organized. I thought it was parties, you know, like I found out later those were meetings, right? And our house was always open. People were always coming by. Well, that's how I know Barbara Ramsby. She was one of my uh, babysitters. And, but there was all of these youth that were, what, what I thought were adults, but now I know were youth like that were coming in and out. And it was like, it was more like a, a neighborhood thing. You got to know people to be an organizer. You got to, you, your job as, this is what it impressed on me. Is, and, and other things after that too. But your job as an organizer is not to be right only. Your job is to know people and to give them a reason to listen to your ideas that might be right, right? Get to, get to build a base with folks. And that looks different than just putting out the right line or having the right, because we, you know, um, when it comes down time to do a campaign, whether you know people or not is a big thing. It's a big difference. So Oakland and, and, and beyond those personal experiences, uh, later on, I definitely found out the radical history of Detroit um, and, you know, and, and things like uh, Detroit Revolutionary Union Movement. Um, you know, uh, a lot of, you know, the, the, the intersection of workers and the new left that happened, which unfortunately was a lot smaller of an intersection than it should have been, right? Um, and, and then um, Oakland, obviously we have the Panthers, we have, uh, you know, we, we had the big anti-war movement. We had, this is the place where, um, that, that shut down the HUAC committee meetings because they showed up at the House and American Activity Committee meetings in San Francisco and said, fuck you, I'm a communist. And they, you know, they made it, the government made a decision that, hey, we don't want this to become a trend, so we're not going to do any more of these, right? And um, so, so definitely the Bay Area has played a big part on it. I mean, everything to do with, because I've been here since I was six, and everything to do with uh, style, words that I choose, um, ways I think about relating to people, um, and all of that. I don't, I'm not sure if, if, I'm, if that's answering the question that you were talking about. Was no, there a different specific thing that I'm missing? No, I think that was good. I always say that I don't really answer questions. I respond to questions and I feel like you responded to the shit. So <laughs> I'm happy. Um, okay. So I want to shift gears a little bit. So you were on, uh, in this interview on democracy now, I just found that inter interview to be so fascinating, which is why I've referenced it a couple of times, but something that you said in there, I thought was interesting. You essentially, you said what I would describe as capitalism shifting its disposition of power to conceal the relations of exploitation. So what you said was, um, and you're talking about Google, like this is not a workplace, this is a beanbag room. And I'm not your boss, I'm your friend. Who tells you what mm -hmm. to do? So, so what are some of the effects of this shift, um, you know, to concealing, 
you know, these efforts to conceal the relations of exploitation, how has that affected workers' consciousness in your perspective, yeah. and well, as well as unions and labor organizing? Yeah, I, I also want to be clear that that shifting is not new. They're always doing that. I mean, the whole reason for the mining towns where you got a company store and you're not really getting paid and then you're your own, you know, they were trying to say miners were independent contractors, right? And that was their argument against, you know, uh, against collective bargaining. Um, and so that sort of thing has always uh, been something, that, you know, that, that has happened and, and, um, and maybe in the last hundred years, um, it's taken the form of us, that shift happening, not only at your job site, but in media, you know, in the commercials we see that we think are just for lotion, but are really telling us other things about what, you know, what life is supposedly about, right? Or movies and things like that. So, um, I think it's affected, yeah, definitely. It's made it, it, it it's made the argument that people should, should uh, band together and withhold their labor. It's made it more complicated in certain situations. However, like I said, on, you know, the other side of that is we're in the midst of a strike wave in the United States that we haven't seen the likes of for since the 40s, right? 900 strikes so far since March. We don't hear a lot about that. We don't hear a lot about that. And, you know, I, I also think on the radical left, we don't talk about it, right? We do, we're, you know, there, there are things that, be, you know, so for, for, for my age group, we looked up so much to the 60s, right? We, you know, the new left and all of that. Like we just had this, this uh, fantasy that, you know, you could just call for a march out loud on the street and then thousands of people would show up. Because at the time when I was, you know, in my late teens and early 20s, we were having very little, pe few people show up at things. So we, we really looked to that, um, to this short period of time. It was a short, small period of time, you know, and some of the things that we idolized from that time are really short things like the Panthers, you know, they were, they were important. And I worked with David Hilliard, Delane Brown, all those folks, but the truth is it's a short period of time. And we idolized that time. And that time really, to me, um, is a change in the left to spectacle and um, to, to moving away from the 20s and 30s where people were shutting down whole sections of industry, right? With, in certain cases, people putting out a radical vision for what they were doing, that this was something that wasn't just shutting it down for this wage increase, but this was part of a larger radical movement to actually change the whole system. And, um, and without going through the whole diatribe by the 60s, um, this had changed to where it moved more towards students and um, 
and more towards cities and places that, and, and um, let me figure out how to smash this all down to a smaller thing. But the, right now, we're seeing the effects of that. We're seeing the effects of the left for the last 50 years being more concerned with spectacle. And so when we have things, I'll just put it like this, for Black Lives Matter, the longshoremen of the Bay Area who are 80% black folks now, the longshoremen, one of the most militant union uh, in the United, the most militant union in the United States. Um, and because of that, maybe some of the better paid ones because they'll shut it down in a second, right? The longshoremen called for and, and had everybody shut down the whole West Coast for a day. And I actually didn't see a lot of, lot of uh, radicals like trumpeting that out. People did, but they didn't trumpet it out as much as they showed like a demonstration where people are standing there or marching through the streets because we are looking for a certain thing that shows us what radical rebellion is. When in fact, we need to be looking toward what the levers of capitalism are and how we shut them down, right? And so, um, and, and, and so there, th now that was a one day strike, but what I'm saying is, is the idea was to try to build it out further. It also ended up going to the Tesla workers and they were gonna shut, shut. They, they actually walked off and then Elon Musk uh, to try to patch things up said, oh, I'm giving everybody the day off, right? And um, so the point is, is that, in order to make our move a radical movement more effective, even to get some of the, the repairs, get some of the uh, reforms that we want, we're gonna, and to build one that can actually tear down this system, we're gonna have to build a mass radical labor movement that can withhold our labor and shut down sections of industry. And, if radicals don't start getting involved in that and don't help make that happen, the working class is moving ahead of us, right? You'll hear a lot of radicals from that, that you know, over the last five years say they are surprised, in, including me, right? By like how, you know, uh, millennials or whatever are now further to the left. Like, how did it happen? all these things. People are going to move to a certain extent more to the left because of just logic, like seeing that this doesn't work, but that can easily be co-opted by just liberal forces. And that's what's going to happen. There, you know, there was a, a when, we, when we had Occupy Oakland, a bunch of us started um, trying to organize a fast food workers union. And because Occupy Oakland was known for being able to shut shit down, um, we were able to put on the flyer, like, look, if you get messed with or fired for this, Occupy Oakland is going to come and shut your McDonald's, shut your KFC down, whatever, until you get rehired. So it was getting a lot of excitement about it. But the larger group of folks at Occupy Oakland decided that organizing labor was a liberal thing. And so they would rather, they did a different action, which was occupying 
you know, something beneficial, but occupying a school to protest uh, schools being shut down. Um, but the point is, is that we've thought about that. And then, so what happened? There had been no fast food worker organizing till that. A, a group of workers in Florida got excited about it and tried it there. It didn't work. And then SEIU picked it up. Now, SEIU, in order to do a, a real uh, labor movement, we're going to have to break laws. We're going to have to break the Taft-Hartley laws and shut things down and have solidarity strikes. To organize, really, a McDonald's, you're going to have to shut down this McDonald's on that side of town, that McDonald's on that side of town. And that's technically illegal. And so a lot of unions are not going to do that, right, because they don't have radical leadership. And it's only radicals that are going to be able to make that kind of a, a, a thing. So the SEIU wasn't going to be able to do that. They weren't going to do solidarity strikes. So while they were making their fast food workers union, they weren't going to be able to call the kind of strike that they needed to do. And that turned into an elect Obama campaign. Right? So, you know, um, we end up missing the uh, we end up missing the boat because we're focused on a, an, an aesthetic of protest, an aesthetic of revolution that is needed. We need spectacle. Obviously, I'm an artist. I think we need spectacle, but we also need we also need organizing around around actual the actual levers, the actual main contradiction of capitalism, which is the exploitation of labor. Uh, that was deeply, um, deeply inform informative, so helpful. So speaking of which, what do you see as the relationship between race and class, right? This is, a, I think this is an ongoing issue. What is the relationship between race and class, specifically um, anti-Black racism and capitalist exploitation? Um, well, first of all, um, capitalism and racism are intertwined inextricably, right? Um, and, and, you know, in order to create capitalism, you had to have slavery. You had to have, you know, uh, the super exploitation of labor, right? Now, in order to create that situation, the theory of race had to be spread out there. And the theory of, you know, people looked at each other and had ideas that we would now classify as racist or whatever, like you had Italians talking about the French and you had, you know, this or that, you know. But people looked at, but, but really what people looked at was, were nations. Like, there was no idea that, that people in the UK, people in uh, England were the same people as the people in France because they were both white. There was no idea like that. There wasn't the idea that the people from one part of Africa were the same as people from another part of Africa because they were both black. That idea, you know, at least it wasn't popular. You know, you can always find somebody that says something somewhere, but it wasn't a, a thing. That was promoted in order to, to make the white working class feel comfortable with slavery. Like, look, we're not going to, enslave you, this is a different race, which at the time meant species. You know, that's a different, you know, we are 
doing that to them. And there's a similar, there's a similar uh, uh, relationship with uh, racist tropes um, to, to this day. So, you know, um, in the film, uh, Danny Glover talks about this idea of what whiteness is. And, and for me, um, what that is, is going, you know, is, is going against, you know, the perceived idea um, of what's put out there, of what blackness is. So um, we have a world backing it up because of the exploitation of labor um, and the racism that it takes to uphold that. Um, what happens is we have, we have a world in which, a system in which you have to have unemployment in order for it to exist. If you have, um, if, if, if unemployment starts going low, you'll see papers like Wall Street Journal and Financial Times worry about the unemployment rate going low because wages go up almost in real time. Um, you have to have this surplus army of unemployed people to threaten the jobs of those working. Because if it was full employment, you could just demand whatever you want for wages, even without a union maybe, because they can't replace you, right? There's, there's, no, there's no reserve labor left. So because of this, no matter what, capitalism demands that there be poverty. Capitalism demands that there be poverty. And when you have unemployed people in poverty, what you also, if you have an army of unemployed people in poverty, what you also have is an army of unemployed people in poverty that need to eat. And if they need to eat, they're not gonna let themselves starve. They're gonna get involved in illegal business. Now, that illegal business, and I'm, not, I'm saying this for the audience. I know you know all of this. I'm, I'm just, you know, saying what I believe, right? Anyway, um, the, you know, that illegal business, just like any business, takes violence to regulate it, right? You go to a grocery store, you know, you take all the groceries out. Somebody's going to physically stop you. It might be one of the workers, might be the security guard, might be the police, and some, that, that's the whole point. They're going to physically stop you. Um, in the 20s, when liquor was illegal, you rob the liquor dude, gangsters come after you. Now liquor is legal, you rob the liquor dude, police come after you. 10 years ago in Oakland, you rob the weed. 20 years ago in Oakland, you rob the weed dude. If he was connected, maybe his friends or gangsters will come after you. Now you rob the weed dude, the police are coming after you because it's legal in, in here. It, so business takes a physical force to regulate it. The illegal business doesn't have the police. They don't have all those things set up where they can say, your, your honor, I was supposed to buy a whole key of cocaine. This is clearly have baking soda. I demand restitution. You can't go to, you know, you, you can't say, hey, uh, zoning commission, there's only supposed to be two cocaine sellers in this area this third person is gonna to have to get a special permit or else start selling heroin, right? Um, you, you don't have that. So practitioners of illegal business have to regulate their business themselves. You, they don't, you know, and, and, that, and that's the part that we call violence. We don't call the other part violence. 
We call that violence. So we get this idea put out that um, what we see of poverty is something to do with the culture of black folks. Because we're not, nobody's gonna is say, is out there saying, look, capitalism necessitates poverty, which necessitates violence, right? Nobody is gonna say that because you, you know, then what they're saying, to, and, and, and if they do say it, they're gonna say it in a coded way, which is saying that, look, um, they're, they're saying, look, to the working class, and which in the United States is mainly white people, look, um, these folks are impoverished, not because of the system, they're impoverished because of their culture, they're impoverished because they haven't learned the right things, they don't know how to wear the tie to the interview, they're, they're you know, they, they for, for decades, you know, a lot of good people, a lot of us believed the lies that black people had less fathers in the home, or had, you know, uh, more teenage pregnancies or something like that, right? We, we, we kept looking at all these things and we kept having all these ideas and, and or that there was more violence in, in black communities than, than, than other communities. All these things lead to these racist ideas of what blackness is. And that those racist ideas of blackness are there just to serve the, the, the purpose of keeping everybody from uh, tearing capitalism down. Because then you put poverty into some, and, and, and crime as people define it, into some sort of personality trait, into some sort of cultural trait that is connected to, to race. Um, so we have some of the similar things, but the point is we're not gonna get rid of racism unless we get rid of capitalism. And we're also not gonna be able to build a movement that gets rid of capitalism unless we fight racism at the same time. So those are the, the, the connection is it's all, it's, it's all the way connected. One begets the other. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Listen, masterclass, Bible. Now, you mentioned the cops, the pigs, 5-0, 12, occupying forces, whatever we want to call them. So recently there's been talk about defunding and abolishing the police, um, which are different but linked, I would say, strategies. Um, and there's, as you know, especially, you know, being in Oakland, there's a long, long history of police brutality, murder, and occupation. Um, you know, these recent, this recent wave stretches all the way back to the early 1900s. It seems to be every race riot that has popped up in this country has generally resulted as a response to police brutality, to specifically white racist police savagery, what we might name it specifically. So where do you stand on this issue, abolition or defund, and how is it important to the broader challenge to capitalist exploitation? Well, to put it in context, um, some of the first things I worked on, um, it, you know, as a youth were, were anti-police brutality campaigns, which were a lot harder before the Rodney King video came out. Like, people would be like, oh, he must have swung at the police. You know, like, average everyday Black folks that we would encounter sometimes would say that. Like, it, things changed. And, and not only Rodney King video, but I, honestly, 
NWA song, Fuck the Police, really changed culture around that. Um, and not that it had always been the way that I'm talking about, that was probably a small sliver in time of, of a whole bunch of cop shows that came after the 60s and stuff like that. But anyway, so, and I've been involved in many, many um, anti-police brutality campaigns. Uh, you know, interestingly, we keep talking about police murder. And so now, like, if somebody just gets beat, beat by the police, it's kind of like, oh, they did, at least they didn't get murdered. Um, you know, that, but, but um, the, um, and, and I've done a lot of work with, not a lot, but I've done some work with, uh, critical resistance throughout the years. And I always had the same question that I do now, which is, is there a way to get rid of the, get, to abolish the police without abolishing capitalism? And I don't think so. I think the only way to have a system in which the people have control over our surroundings which is the one where we would be able to abolish the police would be to abolish capitalism. Now I have, sometimes I get the answer back that, um, well, that's what we're actually talking about. We're actually talking about abolishing this, this system in order to abolish the police, right? And, um, but I think it's a, it's a workaround. I think it's, you, you know how you, you um, talked about how Amy Goodman was surprised that I said, I'm a communist. Um, she was disgusted. She wasn't surprised. She was <laughs> very- I don't think she was disgusted. Good. I've had a lot of conversations with her, but I think, um, I think there's, a, there's, there's an age that came after the McCarthy era and then after a lot of folks from the new left started trying to get jobs and operate in other spheres, that led to this. So for instance, I'm, I, I'm, anyway, I don't want to go on the other thing, but um, that, that led to this atmosphere of folks like my father's age who would be like, man, you're going around saying you're communist. That's just messing up your life. What if you want, you know, this and that, what's, what's going to happen with that? Meanwhile, for folks my age, you know, even though I would get red baited at school or something, I would say I'm a communist. The most thing that they would have against that would be like, okay, I'm trying to get, trying to pay my bills. What does that have to do with it, right? That's, that, it wasn't ever like, you're a communist? What's happening, you know? Now, so in the 90s, the abolish the police thing, I feel like was a stand-in for saying we want to get rid of capitalism. Right. And I also like in a song, I also say I'm abolitionary wishing the judiciary say this year for Mary, Mary, free the penitentiary. But the song is called 20,000 Gun Salute because that's what would have to happen. Right. So I like the spirit of abolish the police. I like where it comes from. But I'm always looking for how do you get people into a movement that with the goal of tearing, of, of, of creating a whole new system. And what I've noticed is that people have to feel like there's a winnable, like there are winnable steps to it, right? So, you know, um, 
even folks just being like, we need revolution. That falls on deaf ears. Like, what do you mean? How do we get there? What, how do we, what are the things that we win along the way? What are the steps? And that's one reason that, that radical movements haven't grown often is because people have a perception that they can't win. And people get involved with things when they think there's a step they can win. Otherwise, it burns out really quick. Um, so that, you know, that, it, and, and there's a lot of nuances to all of this. There are some people that feel like, okay, they can say abolish the police and get people involved in a whole nother discussion about the system, things like that. Um, you know, then there's defund the police. And, you know, I'm all for getting the military uh, grade weapons out of the hands of the police and all of those things. So there's one thing, do I support those movements? Yes. What do I think, you know, whether it's abolish the police, defund the police, I support them. And I lend my, you know, like I said, even with that, uh, those caveats, I still, um, you know, I've done fundraisers for critical resistance, things like that. But, um, you know, just more on the theoretical question of how does it work with the people that hear it? Where do they engage with that? You know, um, is, is a question that I don't think is answered yet, but I have uh, doubts about its effectiveness. Okay, so going for, um, I'm gonna ask one last question before we open it up to the audience. And so going from something very heavy and serious to <laughs> me just being nosy. So um, what's in the pipeline for you now? And a related question, what do you think the future of movie making is gonna look like given the shutdowns, theater closures, and all of this sort of, um, all of this rollback temporary or semi-permanent due to COVID-19? Okay. Well, so the first part, um, so I have a TV show um, that is, uh, there'll be an announcement about it soon, but what I can say right this second is that it is uh, about a 13 foot tall black man who lives in Oakland. Mm. It's called I'm a Virgo and it stars Jarrell Jerome. Um, and so that's my next project. I'm looking at that season as my next film. Um, I've also, uh, I also have uh, an, uh, an episode of Guillermo del Toro's uh, horror anthology series for Netflix that I've written. And that's just waiting to, to, to be filmed. I'll direct that as well. Um, I'll direct all the episodes of, of this TV show. And, um, I've, I've written a, uh, I've, I've written a feature film that I can't talk about, but I'll just say funk has something to do with it. And, um, and then I'm halfway through another feature film that I can say, um, I don't know, it shares the theme of a song of mine. I'll just say that. Right. So, uh, so basically, a show, two feature films, and a uh, and and a, an episode of, of an anthology, um, and and for the TV show, the coup will be doing uh, one song per episode, so we'll have an album collected from that. Um, and uh, let's see. Oh, the 
people are already filming. People are already filming. They just are adding um, 20% of their budget to COVID protections and different things like that. So, um, so obviously that cuts out certain uh, productions because that, that adds on a fair amount of money to things. So you're seeing big movies. I mean, Marvel is filming, um, the big studios, TV shows are all filming, things like that, they're, they're going. Um, uh, as far as theaters, you know, I, I think that'll come back. I think it'll come back. Um, I, I certainly, um, I make movies for people to see in groups together, you know? I mean, they'll see it in other ways too, but, you know, I really, want people to see things in groups together. Okay, all right. Thank you so much for um, these somewhat errant, but I think important questions. And I think um, a lot of us including- They were errant? Errant, yes, all kind of scattered, but you know, I think they're pretty good. Um, thank you, um, I learned a lot just listening to you. Um, all right. Getting into these questions. I get to pick them too. So, um, all right, getting rid of capitalism. This is from our, from Dr. Chris Seeley. Getting rid of capitalism might be necessary to ending racism, but is getting rid of capitalism sufficient? Also, this is amazing. Thank you. You're welcome, sis. Go. Oh, it's not sufficient. It's just the first, uh, it's the prerequisite. So, I mean, um, you know, we have a lot of, cult, you know, the, the, when we talk about culture, you know, culture has a material basis to it. And so, you know, we, we can't just change that culture without changing the material basis. But even once we change the material basis, we still have the remnants of, I mean, there was still already a material basis for racist ideas and all of that. So that's gonna linger over and there'll be struggles. Like there is no end to the revolution, sorry. Like it's gonna keep going. But I think that what we have to do is set up a marker that says, here is the part that we know we're going for. And then as the Zapatistas say, you're like making the road while you travel. I think um, the, the um, that, that, yeah, it's just, it's the prerequisite. And it'll be easier at that point, but it still will be a struggle. It still will be a fight. It'll, it'll still keep going, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Next question from Christopher Marshall. How do we build powerful black workers co-ops under capitalism like the um, Mondragon Corporation in Spain? Um, I don't know, I, you know, um, I love going to co-ops and I, you know, I, uh, matter of fact, we do a lot of touring in um, squats, which squats in Europe um, are different than squats here. Squats here is like somebody's jacked up the wiring and, you know, it's all messy and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but in Europe, like there's squats where they've taken it over and they've made it beautiful and it's a venue and people are doing stuff. And, and I haven't been to Mondragon, but we've been all over Spain anyway. But the point is, is that 
creating a prefigurative society inside of capitalism doesn't get rid of the main uh, contradiction. It doesn't stop exploitation and then capitalism is still organizing, right? But some of those things may like help in the meantime, right? Like you and your friends can create a job or something like that. Um, what I found though with myself, you know, when I got into uh, becoming an artist, it was a, it was a, I was conflicted because I definitely came from an organization that did not respect artists as much as other folks um, and thought of them as hippie, wishy-washy people, right? And I still have some of that idea in my head and some of that is in my movie, right? Mm -hmm. But, um, so, but, and after, for, at first I was like, I'm just doing this and my real thing is this over here and this is what I think, but what you're doing is what you are and what you're doing is all you're doing, right? Mm -hmm. Right at that time. So that can become a whole mission in and of itself to create these uh, prefigurative uh, formations and, um, and, and lead, it's just a matter of focus is my point. It's like lead away from actually organizing. You know, one way you could provide jobs for people is creating these black co-ops. The other way is you could salt at a place that's making billions of dollars and organize with the other people that are working there and shut it down and create the jobs that you need through organizing. Right. And besides not having spent your whole life creating this thing that doesn't change the rest of it, in this case, you then meet and organize with people that aren't already of the same mind. Mm -hmm. Doing the co-op often brings people together. That's one of the beautiful things about it. It brings people together that, that agree on things. Right. But this is like getting people to where they work to take action in a way that affects their life. And it changes large areas, large groups of people uh, for a long time. Okay. 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 But I'm not shitting on co-ops. I just think we, we've had a lot of that. We need, we need organizing at the job right now. Cause that's where people are. You talk to people like, why aren't you coming to the, you know, to the march? Well, they're like, man, I got to get paid, right? This is where people are at all day, every day. That's where we need to be organized. And we need radicals salting, sneaking into those places, getting jobs, organizing people there. Okay. I mean, that's something that the, uh, that drum did. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. So I'm going to combine a couple questions. Um, one is, okay, if raggedy ass Biden wins, uh, what action should the radical left take to see um, if he can be pushed to the left? And that I'm going to combine with, um, how do you find hope right now? What should young people be focused on to move our society forward to a more just one? I'm going to answer the second one first. Um, I think the more that you learn actually what's going on, the more hope you have. Um, I, and 
And I think that, that um, like I said, I kind of came up in a time when we were looking up to the 60s, right? From everything from the civil rights movement to the more radical things, right? And, and it just seemed like a time of such great activity to be around and stuff. And the truth is, let's look at some markers of that, right? Um, the March on Washington for Jobs and Justice, which they organized for a year for and had the help of major networks and had money, a lot of money behind them and all that, and had, you know, the most popular civil rights leader, you know, that will be, is more popular than anybody will be nowadays because they're not gonna, you know, the, the media is different, right? And they, um, 200,000 people, right? That would be a medium success these days, right? We had, starting in the early 2000s, we had millions of people on the street against the Iraq war. When um, Occupy happened, 2011, you had every city and town had Occupy encampments, little towns, big towns, all those sorts of things. You had, um, just this year, bigger than that, all over the place, people wanting to engage. People can have arguments about how liberal versus how radical it was, but the lack of radicalism is only our fault, mm -hmm. right? And the, you know, of what we've been engaging with people at, where we've been engaging, we can't just engage with people when it's time to go protest. We gotta engage with people at a, you know, at the, at, we got to collectivize their individual struggles against capitalism they're having we'll collectivize those fights and then we'll be in a better position. But that being said, that's happening. Um, we're at a place right now for the last six years, all these polls from right wing uh, surveyors to all sorts of things in between have shown um, of millennials, 51% of them say they want a socialist society, right? 43% um, of all ages together say they want a socialist society. Um, for if you go younger than millennials, that number is way higher than 51%. And even with those percentages, you gotta keep in mind there are some people that would never say that they want certain things and they may not even use those words for them or they may be like, who's answering this question, who's peeking at this answer that I'm doing or whatever, right? So that number is probably higher than that. We're at a time when we had nine, we've had 900 strikes this year, a couple of them with radical goals and radical intentions. And what do I mean by radical intentions? You had the, you had GE workers who, and who build, who build, uh, build engines, build jet engines. Now, I don't know how much they get paid, but they probably get paid pretty well doing that. I mean, compared to, you know, a UPS truck driver job or something like that, right? They went on strike and shut it down. And one of their, their, their things, it wasn't just like pay us more, just protect us. They were like, we, we want to make ventilators for everybody else. And that's one of the strike demands. Now that's a radical, 
that's that's a radical place to be when people are using their ability to withhold labor to do stuff for other people and that's like always something as an organizer you you can look to see where folks are at um and and this this is a lot different than the than the whole 20 years before that 30 years before that right there's a lot to be looking at um and 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 a lot to be doing everybody's people are looking for ways to engage and figure out what's to be done now mind you we're going to have in the midst of that you also have people obscuring the reality of what's going on right you have people obscuring things and this is you know to touch the the, the biden thing like we went from a thing where at the very least um Bernie Sanders running meant, showed that there, there was that feeling out there that we need something new. Now, whether you think that he was going to be part of bringing it or whatever, I thought that maybe he could be part of instigating general strikes, which as you could hear from everything else I said is a very important part of, a revolu of building a revolutionary mo movement. Um, that for some of the things that he was proposing, that uh, him being in a certain place and calling for a strike for Medicare for all or any of number of these things would be a would would be a very different spot for us politically. Now we've gone from that, and 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 now my view is also that you know the folks that vote are a very small amount of people compare if this whole square of my screen are the amount of people eligible to vote, you know, the folks that actually vote are about this amount, like, and, and if you look at the primary, it's like this amount, right? And, and, and so the reason that most of those folks don't vote is not because they're apathetic, it's because they're to the left of the Democratic Party. Most people don't believe any of that bullshit and, and understand that, that these folks are all working for similar bosses, right? And, um, and so whether you like that outlook or not, that's the outlook that a lot of people have. And I say this from 20 years of touring around the country and the world, talking to people. Like at each one of my shows, I get off the stage afterward and talk to people. And we don't only, I didn't only perform at coup concerts. I, we performed at festivals with all sorts of other people. And, and from also just from organizing and talk, talking to people, being part of campaigns. So my assessment has always been that people are way to the left of whatever the media is trying to say. But now the media is using this election to give to not only among many other things one of the things is to change our perception of where the rest of the working class is politically right because when you have like just take the green new deal you have like kamala and biden um being like uh you know what green new deal we never said that we love fracking. We're burning oil out in the parking lot just now, you know? Um, 
then the, the argument is, well, they have to say that because nobody is for that, right? And so that's, that's, that's the subliminal message we're getting, right? And so you go from, and, and so we're going to also find ourselves having to fight what that perception is in, in ourselves, right? And, and because it changes what we think we can do, what we think we can call for, what kind of campaigns we can be involved in. Um, what should people do if um, Biden is elected is like, you know, same thing we do every day, Pinky, try to take over the world, you know. I'm so entertained. Okay, so um, I'm gonna put two more um, questions together. One is, what advice could you offer for people currently working in a non-unionized labor environment? And then another is, I agree we have to, uh, to be organizing labor. Do you have any advice for how you radicalize unions that are not at all radical? Lest we forget the Popo got the biggest and strongest union in the world. And no, they I'm not even counting them. Like, right, of course don't, not. Don't salt and try to organize the police. Yeah, but even like, so in academia, right, there's these adjunct unions that mm. are they got the right spirit but the politics are not there so one question is about how do you radicalize labor unions the other is like what do you advice do you have for people in non-unionized labor environments um okay so you know my I, and i don't ever want to seem like I, I think i have all the answers but i can point to a few things um and and how that works so just going back to Occupy Oakland again. Um, when when uh, we call during Occupy Oakland, um, there was a thing that put us in the media spotlight, where every camera in the world was there, and um, folks decided to call for a general strike that was going to happen the next week, um, and everybody you know, was a little bit skeptical about that. Even though I was one of the people that called for it, I uh, was doing that because other people voted for it, right? And I was a little skeptical of it. The next, but because of the media coverage and everything, the next week, um, 50,000 people showed up and there was a general strike. And we also shut down the ports. Now, before that, I had been working with ILWU, um, their warehouse part this dude, Fred Pecker, who's since passed. And he had me speaking to some of their, uh, their, their uh, recycling workers who were getting fed a bad contract. And, um, but many of them were immigrants and were, you know, they may have been legal, but they also were just like happy to have the job, even though they wanted more, they didn't want to cause a problem. And so they were having a problem getting their own members to strike to not to and not accept the contract. Then Occupy Oakland happened. And when I asked Fred afterward what's going on, he was like, they're going on strike. They saw Occupy Oakland and Occupy Oakland radicalized them. Right. So, but you know, so things come in context of other things. Uh, you know, 
I have a friend that works at a grocery store. And when I told them about the, the Amazon workers strike in New York that went on, which wasn't exactly what I thought it was, but it was there, it was something. They called for a strike at their grocery store, right? Now that's, that's militant and not necessarily radical, but this is just about how things, um, how these things work is like, you have to get in there and be working with them, right? They're not gonna be radical at first. You have to be working with them and a combination of the campaigns you're able to get involved with, with them and, and how much you're able to point to other things happening around them and in the world is going to be that. And, it, and it's about base building. It's, you know, everybody's changing. People are gonna, you know, and, and on the political spectrum, they're either getting more radical or less radical. And you are the one that is, is that might be the determining factor, will probably be the determining factor on whether the, it gets more radical. And it's really sometimes a one-to-one -one thing. Sometimes it's about what campaigns you are choosing and all of the and, and other things that are going on in the world. Um, but um, yeah, so I, and that being said, I've never solved it. So I don't know is the thing, but these are stories that I'm hearing from other folks that are organizing. And it's, that doesn't mean, nothing that I'm saying is there's a simple answer to it, but it's the thing that has to get done, right? It's the thing that, like, you know, the question is, do we have to do it? Yeah. Is it hard? Hell yeah. Um, but we'll find the payoff from that work later. Imagine if, if organizers in St. Louis, radicals had been, had been organizing um, for 15 years before Mike Brown around, around this stuff. And even if they were able to get a couple places to shut down, and I don't mean a symbolic strike, but to shut down until they got an indictment, right? You'd see an indictment if they got one industry or definitely if they shut down half the industry. But the point is, is that, you know, you gotta be, be prepared for the surprises. And by us being prepared for the surprises means we have to work in those areas. And, you know, um, definitely, I, I, I think a lot of folks in my generation um, got radicalized in college. And then um, the idea was, how do I get a job with my politics? Right. And um, often that was in the nonprofit sector. Right. That's how you kind of get it. But then that nonprofit sector has these parameters on it. And, you know, and, and you know, and that that becomes either their politic or it or just, uh, you know, or you're just stymied by it. Now, how do you get a job with your politic coming out of college is you get a job that maybe your parents aren't going to be happy with where you are working at a place that you don't need that degree for and you are helping to organize a radical militant labor movement and you are salting and it takes you can't just do it by yourself right it takes 
being involved in an organization that's outside of that job site, because you also need replenishment. You do also need to meet up with folks that agree with you, all those sorts of things. So, you know, the thing that we're missing these days is parties, right? So we need parties, organizations. People are very against that. Um, we've had a left that's very, very influenced by punk culture. And, um, and what, you know, and, and has like kind of made a, a stigma against parties. Every time there's a, you know, like, believe me, I was in a very sectarian party where we talked shit about every other organization that existed. But I also know that that shit was wrong, right? That um, you have to unite with folks. And so now what I see is that most people aren't in an organization and the few organizations that exist are just a bunch of people that aren't in an organization talking shit about them instead of creating something that's more effective or that answers their critique to that. Or else, if you're not gonna do that, working with those organizations, right? And, um, so, um, yeah, we, I don't remember what I was saying, but the, we need parties and, and, and you need to join a party. That's your organization. And then you need to, we need to be infiltrating these, these, in, you know, these job sites and organizing. Okay, so we have time for maybe two questions if it's a lightning round. So I gotta, I'll be having to tell Gerald the same thing. So maybe we can get in two more questions if this is a lightning round. So I'll try to get the, okay. the snippet in there. <laughs> okay, I wanna um, ask this question from Kevin Clay. What are your thoughts on the impact uh, that the growing popularity of liberal racial nationalism amongst black celebrities has on the ability of the black working class to develop class consciousness? Is racial nationalism a gateway to deeper class consciousness or is it ultimately a subterfuge? I mean, it's always hard to, to, to say for sure what something is going to let people do. I mean, before I joined a revolutionary organization, I literally thought I was gonna like, just work out a lot and become a superhero. And I was really <laughs> with that, like, you know, really like into God and all that. And it was a short period of time, but <laughs> you know, there's no such thing as you can't get there from here. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like you, you, you can't, but the, there is a danger in the sense that, um, some of those politics aim to supplant more radical politics. They aim to uh, take some of the aesthetic of more radical politics and, um, and, and take out all the guts of it and take the analysis out of it and make people feel like they're doing something. You know, um, so a lot of the, the you know, what you could call cultural nationalist stuff is a way to, to just take out any class analysis from things, right? And, and have a feel good thing. And it's very popular because 
that's the easy thing to promote in movies. That's the easy thing to promote in commercials, whatever, you know what I'm saying? Like you can, it, it, it promotes capitalism, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, that that's, it's, it's, and it promotes exploitation. So you'll never hear those folks talking about exploitation. The idea is to create black corporations that then exploit maybe black workers. I don't know what they are, who they're going to exploit, but they're going to be exploiting someone. And they're going to be work. They're not going to have, you know, some separate power base. And so that's the whole plan. That's just that, that often is just the argument against, uh, Radicalism, but that doesn't mean that some people have got to there because they're looking for something, right? They're looking for a way. And so we always have to figure out how to bring folks over as opposed to only, we have to be clear about the distinctions, right? But um, I, I always say like Twitter has, made a way of arguing and critiquing with folks where everybody is just wanting to be right. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe I've, I, I'm sure I, I've done that. And, um, and, and it hasn't been just since Twitter. Like if you're standing in the student union arguing with people about your thing, you, you know, people are yelling at the top. That was fun. We used to do that. Yell at the top of our lungs and man, what's more, you know, stomping around and all that kind of stuff. But that's going all over. Twitter and what people have forgotten is that we're trying to win. We're not just trying to be right and shut somebody down. We're trying to win them over to our side. Now it's hard to win. The reason that Twitter is able to be like that is because it's hard to win someone over to your side when you don't have anything you're asking them to do. If you're just asking somebody to believe something different, you're like over here, it's all theory on both sides, this and that. But that's the beauty of having uh, campaigns that have a, a material objective that, that is close by, because then it's like, are you gonna be involved or not? And here, and then your argument, your theoretical argument is around something real, right? Um, but yeah, so the arguments we have with folks, you know, being in a, a campaign, being part of a movement or a campaign is what makes those arguments productive. And beyond that, we have to have a, a way that we're arguing with folks in which we are actually trying to win them to our side as opposed to just show we're right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, that was not a lightning round. So I'm just gonna ask Sorry. one more question. <laughs> It's okay. It was, these answers are so rich. Um, so last question, and I, I'm screenshotting everything. So maybe even if we don't get to everything, there is a way in which we can think okay. through some of these questions at a later time, because this will be um, recasted or replayed on New Dawn. So um, okay. cool. if you know what your time is looking like, we might be able to get to some, some more of these later on. But um, Last question. Dun, 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 dun. All right, I'm going to ask the question from our dear organizer Dante. Um, what is what do you think about organizing around debt? Um, your focus seems to be on, on the point of production, um, which a lot of folks aren't organized around. So could this be 
could this, i.e. debt, be a potential point of organizing millions of people? Um, uh, you know, the answer is I don't know. I mean, some of how Occupy started was people talking about how much in debt they were. Um, the question is what you organize around with that. Like, you know, I like to talk about things that we can physically be involved in, you know, strikes as opposed to boycotts. Right? Boycotts are things that you don't know what's happening, where it's going on, anything like that, and um, aren't as effective as strikes. And that the, the, the reason I support strikes as opposed to those is because it's something we can do, something we can get into, as a, and that's not just a petition, not just putting out things. So I don't know how you would get involved with that. And that I'm saying I don't know in a, not, not making the statement that you can't, I'm just saying I don't know how you get involved in um, debt. There's the idea of debt strike, but that also feels like a boycott thing. How do you organize around that? I think a similar thing you can do is rent, rent strikes, things like that, because you can organize a specific geographical area and talk to folks and do those things. Okay, one more, last one, I swear. All right, this one is, how do you get capitalists to fund anti-capitalist films. So you did it. So what was that like? How do you do it? Well, the truth is, is that um, nobody thinks they're part of the system and we all are, right? Nobody thinks they are. And so you, you got all sorts of uh, uh, folks in. Okay, this is supposed to be lightning round, but I, I, I got to use this story. Um, so, uh, a story that I got from Tom Morello is that when him and Rage Against the Machine were uh, doing their video for Sleep Now in the Fire, it was directed by Michael Moore and their idea was they were going on, on to Wall Street and they were gonna play and the police were, they knew the police were gonna come and try to arrest them, that was gonna be the video, they were just gonna film that. So they go, they play the first time, people looking around, nothing happened, they play again, somebody shuts the security gates on Wall Street, they see police radio and they play again. They start hearing something coming from far away that's going, rah, 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 rah. It's coming from far away. And so they play again, nothing's happening. They play again and then they're still hearing this, rah, rah, rah. And then they see a couple blocks away around the corner are hundreds of people in suits. They obviously work on Wall Street and they're marching towards them. And as they get closer, they hear that what they're actually saying is, suits for rage, suits for rage. And for those that don't know, Rage Against the Machine is like, I guess, anti-capitalist and very rebellious in their music. And all of these folks were folks that by them saying suits for rage, they knew the contradiction. And they were fans and they came there. And the reason why is that they agree, like many people, that we should have a whole different system. However, the radical left hasn't done the job of showing them that there is a movement that can actually get rid of capitalism. So if people think there's no way to change it, then they're just like, okay, you know, there's no way to change it. There's no getting out of this. I'm gonna just take this job right here. So many people 
you you know, like, you know, our function is different from what we believe, right? So one of the reasons that I, you know, the party I was in was kind of against uh, me becoming an artist was because artists are petty bourgeois, right? You're petty bourgeois in the functional sense. You are not working at a place that's paying you one paycheck and you're often, I'm hiring band members, I'm, you know, doing all this kind of stuff. My function is petty bourgeois, right? Um, and, and, and no matter what somebody believes, they're, they're, you know, they could have a socialist idea, but their function is still a capitalist and they do these different things. So you have many people like that. Like the, he doesn't like me to say it, but the guy that runs Epitaph Records, which is a big record label, um, and, uh, you know, and makes millions of dollars or whatever, uh, but he used to be in the RCP, right? He's not anymore, but part of it is because, you know, he didn't think anything could happen from that. So sometimes what I get are people from agents to investors are like, oh, I'm glad I can finally do something that I, I believe in or whatever, right? Then there you have the other part is that capitalism has become such a reality that um, nobody thinks there's going to be anything else. So it's somewhat harmless or whatever, all, all of those things. And, um, you know, so, so there's that too. Like, am I going to make money on it or not? Because for many years, how radical art got slammed down was just people saying, oh, nobody agrees with this. It's not going to get out there. We had, we had the number one requested song on KML in the 90s a couple different times. And they were like, oh, we think, oh, this, this must be just your fans because people don't want to hear that political shit, right? So that always could be out there. And so there, there's, there's that aspect to it. The other aspect is for my movie, the main thing that people got hung up on when they read the script were the Equisapiens. Maybe they would have got hung up on something else had those Equisapiens not been there, so. Oh, I'm muted. Oh, I said, oh, that was such a mic drop. Okay, we're out of time. So I want to turn it back over to Dante and Jeff. Um, thank you so much. But thank you. Thank you for all these wonderful questions. I documented all of them. So maybe, Boots, I'm going to hit up Summer, see if we can schedule another thing to answer some more of these questions. All right. <laughs> um, but this was wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much for what you're doing and what you're writing, putting out there. And, um, Creating. He only read one article, y'all. He don't even really know. Yeah, I, just... <laughs> I know. Yeah, I I read the uh I read the uh crib notes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. You read the abstracts. Yeah. That's what all the students do too. So you like yeah. you write you write in there. <laughs> okay. Anyway, Dante um, or Jeff, do you all have announcements to make? No. Nope. Jeff, you there? Yes, I am here. Sorry, I was trying to get something together. Um, no, no, I lost my page. Sorry, everybody. <clears throat> uh, no, I don't think I have anything 
to announce just yet, Dante? Yeah, well, if y'all have any closing remarks, feel free, but uh, we just want to say thank you so much, Dr. Sharice, uh, CBS, uh, for being with us again. Uh, we loved your last event. We had a lot of positive feedback uh, for the talk on the We Charge Genocide Petition and then Boots. First time with us, hope to have you again in the future and hopefully get to meet you in person as well. Um, and yeah. Uh, yeah, we have a poetry night coming up on Friday night, um, a little bit of cultural events. Um, we have some local artists and international artists and also national artists as well joining us. Um, that'll be at 8 p.m. Eastern on Friday nights, uh, this upcoming hey, Friday. Where physically are you all? Uh, we're in D.C. Okay. Cool. Yeah, so Friday night, uh, come join us. We can post a link in the chat to register. Um, and yeah, if y'all can drop a dime, we're trying to raise some funds as well for the school um, as well. So um, thank you all for joining us. And yeah, Dr. CBS and Boots, if y'all want to have some last words for the audience, feel free. I just want to point out that people are chanting suits for Boots. <laughs> <laughs> That shit is comedy. Um, I just want to thank everybody for coming out. Um, if you ever are interested in my scholarship, uh, which is about racial capitalism, anti-radicalism, and anti-blackness, it is on academia.edu. It is all there. If there's something you can't find, please email me. I will send it to you because you should not be paying for that. Um, nothing should be behind a paywall. Um, thank you to all, to my masterminds group and all my writing group for coming. Um, my mom was here, my Carlton colleagues, and just again, thank you Boots for just responding to my random tweet. I think we all learned so much. Well, I mean, I, I read the bio, I was like, oh, that'll be an interesting conversation. And then after that, I read more stuff. So. <laughs> okay, okay. So, yeah. All right, cool. You shouting anything you out? Much. You got any any parting words? I mean, um, we're we're living in exciting times, mm -hmm. and you know, um, it's a you know to to use a cliche, it is time to seize the time, and the decisions we make about what we're doing right now um, are are maybe amplified. Uh, for, for other times and, and this is a time that you know 20 years from now you're going to be talking about with your kids grandkids whatever and um, you're going to want some good stories and um, so and, and not to do like so many do, do exaggerate them right you're going to want, want to get involved it's 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 Time, people are asking for it, and we gotta get organized. All right, thank you. All right. All right. Thank you. Have a good night, y'all. <laughs>